I remember the kind of crying that I did that day was something that I don't know if I've ever repeated. It was devastating. So devastating. Hi, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney, and today I have for you a conversation with mom, Kara Riska, in the story of Levi. Levi had brain cancer when he was just two years old. In this episode, Kara shares what it was like to learn about and treat his tumor and the many disabilities that he lives with now nine years later as repercussions of the treatment. And cancer, fun fact number one, uh, pediatric cancer is actually considered to be rare. So I'm so glad to include Kara and her experience with pediatric cancer. Cancer, fun fact number two, (laughs) Uh, on a personal level, some of you may already know this, but my dad passed away when I was in my early 20s, so like five years ago, from another type of brain tumor. And, you know, these situations are really different in so many ways. But while talking to Kara about this and hearing her story, I did feel an extra closeness to my dad and also to those painful memories. Yes, I guess that wasn't quite a fun fact. (laughs) Before we jump into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about Kara and her family. Kara lives in San Diego, California, with her husband and four kids. Cade, who is 13, Levi, who is 11, and whom we will be talking a lot about today, Will, who is 9, and Cambry, who is three. We connected because she's another fellow podcaster mama. I've been making lots of new friends in that realm. (laughs) There are more to come. Her podcast is called The Special Needs Mom Podcast, which I love how clear and concise that title is because you just have no question of what it's about. She also is a certified life coach for special needs moms. And you can find links to both those resources in the show notes. Kara is awesome, and I am so happy to know her. She is a lover of learning and her AirPods. All right, let's jump in. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And I will tell you, I've been wanting to have a parent share a story about pediatric cancer And so I think this will be really awesome slash, you know, heartbreaking and stuff to get into. I'm really excited to hear your story. To start off, will you please tell us a little bit about Levi today, who he is today, and just a little snapshot of who he is? I would love to. So Levi is my 11-year-old son. I would say the most common comment I get about him is that he is such a light. And it's really interesting, all the different people that meet him and work with him, the commonality and the language that they use about him is striking. Mm. And I would agree. He is such a light. And I think it's quite funny because I also call him my baby polar bear for his (laughs) physical attributes, but also because he's very, very blonde. And so when people say he's such a light, I'm like, yeah, literally, (laughs) he's glowing in the dark. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) So while he is a a pediatric brain tumor survivor, he lives with 
the long list of diagnoses and disabilities that are a result of this survival. Mm. And you want me to go ahead and list all those? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's okay. Hear so yeah, I have to kind of go from like do a head scan <laughs> yeah. down to the body to remember everything that's going on. So oh. I would say that as a result of the resection, basically that's how he has all of his conditions. So firstly, he is blind in one eye, completely blind in one eye. And we didn't know that until over a full year after his surgery, we were working very hard to sustain what we thought was sight, but we, we learned that it was not. And so that is one of the things that he lives with. And one, the other eye is fully functioning. It's interesting. So we don't know. And because, because of some of his impulsivity, we can't have him do some of the tests that would allow us to know that because it's, okay. it's, you know, he'd have to be able to have the ability to have the feedback on the test, which we're going to schedule, but I'm not going to be betting anything on it because I know he's like very clever about doing what he thinks people want him to do. It, actually, it's heartbreaking because mm. when he would be in the ophthalmologist and the doctor shining the light in his face, he wanted so badly when the doctor said, can you see this light to say yes. But, and you could see, he was like trying to figure out like, well, where's the light? Cause he couldn't mm. see the light. Oh my God. And that's so sad. It's really sad. Yeah. It was, it's like, even though I, I know he is blind in that eye when it's right in my face like that, it crushes my heart. Mm-hmm. So his, yeah. So his other eye is he's very functional. He's able to operate like a fully sighted person. Of mm-hmm. course we have supports for him in school. So that's okay. the vision. Then he has a condition called panhypopituitarism. It's a long word. Mm. I still can't consistently spell it. <laughs> after all these years, after nine years, yeah. and essentially what that means is he does not have a pituitary anymore. So he is adrenal insufficient, meaning, meaning that he does not produce the stress hormone that all of us produce oh, regularly. Yeah. And so this one, I would say, is the scariest of all of them is the adrenal insufficiency because what this means is when his body gets sick, we need to manually help his body basically combat that. And if we don't know he's getting sick, then we can't do that in which he can get in a very serious condition. We've been very fortunate for all the years. And I would say we had our, our most significant run in uh, just about a year ago where he woke up and he had a blood pressure of 59 over 33 and a temperature of 107. Oh my gosh. Any healthcare providers out there that hear this, they'd be like, well, (laughs) that's not compatible with life. They were telling me this afterwards. And like, when we heard this, we thought, oh boy, this doesn't look good. (sighs) And I have a whole episode on that day or on that Mm -hmm. process, because there's a lot, I could go all into that story, but Mm -hmm. for the purposes of explaining his diagnosis, we'll (laughs) leave it there. So essentially we have to manually support him. Mm. He also has diabetes insipidus, which means that he, I don't even know how to describe this in the right terms, but basically without the medication, he would constantly be peeing or avoiding as we call it in that world. Mm -hmm. And so what this looks like is him drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and peeing and peeing and peeing without his proper medication. And it's very easily managed with medication, but also like, I like to describe him to people that he's like a manually operated kid where Mm. like through these series of medications, we're able to keep them very functional, but I mean, they are life critical medications, obviously. Yeah. In which case when 
the world shut down, you know, last year for the coronavirus, my first thought, my first and only real fear was, oh my gosh, what if we can't get his medications? Oh yeah. Cause when you live on life-saving medications, that's something I think about. And we have yeah. had issues. We have not had significant issues, but there's legitimate shortages of some of the medications. Oh, I just had to change things around this year. That is so terrifying. And I know that that has been the case too for um, people with kids with trachs too, like trying to get ventilators and stuff. And just all of that, Kimball wasn't affected by COVID in that way. And I I just feel for you know you and other parents that had that extra layer of terror. Like that is just so scary. Well, it's an interesting point that you put there, the extra layer of terror. I think honestly, for a lot of the listeners of your podcast, and I think I, myself, I think we constantly live with that little layer of terror mm-hmm. that always exists. That So my son actually did have a cold virus this week, which he manages colds quite well. But again, with him, when he gets a fever is when we really have to start what's called stress dosing and making sure we were adjusting his medications. Mm-hmm. And like, you mentioned that little bit of terror. There's always that little bit of terror when you're manually operating somebody that like you could screw it up. Yeah. Or like in some cases with that instance that I mentioned last year that he woke up very ill, like he went to bed. Okay. He woke up very ill. So there's always that little bit of terror Mm -hmm. that is just part of our reality. Yeah. And I guess we've learned to live with it, but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's something that no one else can truly understand unless they've been in that situation where they might be like, well, lighten up. I'm sure nothing bad will happen. But like, but I know that this has happened. This is a reality. Like kids die from this kind of stuff. Like with Kimball, it's his neck. And like every time he falls, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, is he going to die from it? Because he really could. Other kids have. So it really is like this. I'm not a helicopter parent by nature, but like you kind of become a little bit of one. You know, it's almost like when you know that these things can happen. And like, I think it's like almost like when we've been struck by lightning, if you will, one time by having these kids Mm. with these very rare situations, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, we already got struck by lightning one time. So now we know it's possible. Yeah. And so it's like living with the possibility of it happening again. And, you know, Mm. we can get into it later, but kind of managing your mind around that is, is really important. It's like a wildfire. If you can, if you indulge into that, I think it really can start to get out of control. But I do think mm-hmm. that we have to learn how to actually just live with it, um, yeah. to allow the fear and the terror to be there, but not let it consume us. Yes. Yeah, so well okay. said. Yeah. So let me continue on with more list of diagnoses. <laughs> okay. I'm only have. I'm not even. I'm not even know how far I am in, but we have a ways to go. <laughs> okay. okay. So we got the diabetes insipidus. That's, that's that. And then he is, um, hype. He has hypothyroidism. So that's easily managed with medication. And then he also does not produce growth hormone. So he has to take a daily injection so that he can grow. And interestingly enough, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but he didn't start that medication until a year after his tumor resection. And when you, you know, when you start a new medication, you as a very responsible parent read the pamphlet. <laughs> and when I was reading the pamphlet on this medication, there's big letters that say may cause growth of pediatric brain tumors. 
And oh here we're in this place where like this medication is not optional. Like he needs to have this to grow. He will not grow without it. And yet it's known for causing brain tumor growth, regrowth. Uh, <laughs> so that is the worst. <laughs> um, oh yeah. And then, you know, and then even just learning, thinking back, like now it's so part of our everyday life, but learning how to give your son an injection. And these are like the littlest needles that I think they even make. But I still remember how hard I shook the first couple of times that we had to inject him. And yeah, it's really interesting looking back into that. So he takes that wow. daily and that one's just like, gotta say it's a pain because it has to be refrigerated. And that's just a pain. If you think about, we like going camping and we like doing all these things. And if you have this daily injection medication that you have to have with you all the time, I'm sure the moms out here listening are like, yeah, I get you. I got something like this and it's a pain. Or even like when we're tucking him into bed and like, we're like so close to being like, you know, done as parents for the night. And it's like, Oh, I gotta go downstairs and get that shot. It's like not this huge monumental thing, but it is just one more thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, and then we will eventually have to give him testosterone to help him become a man as his body won't naturally produce that. And so that's going to be part of our future. Always joke that I'm going to have him be my baby boy forever. He's like, I'm just going to withhold that. And he's like, not super like opposed to that. <laughs> so cute. Really, it's very funny to think about. Okay. So that, that covers the panhypopituitarism. And then he, so he has hemiplegia. So the left, the entire left side of his body after his surgery, essentially he had a surgical stroke. So the tumor was mm-hmm. vascularly connected to parts of his brain that would have controlled his left side. And so when he woke up from his surgery, he was no longer able to move his arm or his leg. Wow. And he was, I mean, he was a little guy. I actually went through some pictures to to send to you to prepare for this. And it was interesting looking. I've looked at the pictures recently, but when you recognize like what this kid has been through, it's, it's, it's very, very sad. Mm. And yet it's also like, it's so miraculous that he is doing so well with what he's been through because you look at the you look at the pictures of him after the surgery where he's or even I have videos where he's like he's relearning to walk again and like he's just this little two-year-old trying to figure out how to move in this body that doesn't work like it did before and just him learning to sit up again and because you know it's his whole left side like it's not just his arm leg like his whole left side and so he's been very successful in, in gaining a lot of that motor control back. So he's able to walk, he's able to run, has a very modified gait. So he's by no means quick. And, mm. you know, being a professional athlete is, is probably not going to be in his future. And he, he, he's able to use his hand, but he just definitely doesn't favor it. And, mm. but he, you know, people adapt, of course. So yeah, he's got the hemiplegia. And lastly, and this is one where I think it's, it's taken years to evolve. I would say that we have a lot of behavioral challenges and specifically in the area of impulse and social emotional. It's interesting because mm-hmm. I think he's a person that thrives so much on connection. And I mean, as an example, like when we were camping a couple of weeks ago, our campground was adjacent to a road where people would walk by or ride by. Yeah. And he was sitting at the table and, and this was, I mean, it was adjacent, but like, I mean, it was like 20 feet away that people were walking by and he was just like, hi, hi. Oh and like, I, people were like walking, they didn't really hear him. And I kind of just coached him and said, Hey, Levi, I think, 
that might be a little far to engage in a, a conversation. Like <laughs> maybe like, so cute. Really working, buddy. Um, but I mean, it's just an example of he loves connecting with people. Hmm. And yet he has a really hard time connecting with people on the level that I think most of us can easily. And so peer connections are really challenging for him. It's interesting. He has like a, a double challenge because, because his body doesn't move like a typical 12 year old. He's almost 12. He can't keep up with people physically. Hmm. So what are most 11 year old boys doing at recess? Well, they're not sitting and chatting. I'll tell you that they're yeah. up and moving. They're running. They're doing silly boy things. And I know this because I have two other boys and I see what typical boys are doing. Mm -hmm. And so he's not been able to connect with his peers in that way. And he does have a lot of relationships with girls. And I think because if you think about how girls are acting at that age, they're chatting and they're talking and he's really mm -hmm. good at those things. And it's interesting because he's also, he's intellectually very capable. He's a very smart person and he does not have an intellectual disability. And it's interesting also like having the body that he has because he, he carries a lot of weight. And so he, and then he has this modified gait. And so because mm. of those two things in combination, mm. people see the way he moves his body. And I think, I don't know, I can't say for certain. I think they make the jump that he has an intellectual disability. Right. And so often people are, are kind to him and sweet to him, but it, I don't know. It's just an interesting observation as his mom looking over and, and trying to understand what, how people are kind of perceiving him yeah. and obviously like feeling very protective of like, don't you do judge in my son or, or mm -hmm. then there's always the people that feel uncomfortable about something and then treat him differently, like usually in a better way. So they're mm -hmm. going to give him a gift or they're going to be really extra accommodating to him mm -hmm. in a way that actually like, I'm like, okay, my other kids are watching and like, yes, this child does have some extraordinary needs, but like, you know, I, I don't know how all the other moms do it, but I'm like, we don't necessarily try to treat him differently as a result yeah. of it. Yes. We accommodate for his needs and yes, we advocate for him, but we don't necessarily give him prizes when mm. his other brothers don't get one. Oh, and so it's right. interesting seeing other people feel the need to to treat him that way. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that's an interesting combination. I've thought a lot about that kind of thing with my son Kimball where like he looks different because he has these different birth defects and stuff, but he's neurotypical. And so I do think he'll probably run into a similar thing where people will see him and then kind of assume like, oh, he must be also intellectually disabled which, I mean, like, if he were intellectually disabled, like, we would obviously love him just as much. But, you know, you do want them to not underestimate them or be able to interact with them in a way that they are able to interact and, you know, not treat them differently just because of what they look like. And so it is an interesting, interesting balance. And with the whole, like, special treatment because of his disabilities that, you know, I think of that a lot, too, with, with his sister, Wendy. So that's just so relatable. And I would love to get into the culprit of all of these things that he has to deal with, brain cancer. So can you bring us to kind of that moment when you found out, uh, when they told you that your two-year-old had a brain tumor? Yes, I definitely recall that moment. And 
it's one of those kind of moments where the world does certainly slow down and mm-hmm. your whole life changes in a, in a moment. So the backstory a little bit is, so he was two and three months. And I know that because when you admit your child to the hospital, they always give the exact age and 10 days prior to him actually receiving that me hearing those words, he started to have what we would describe as flu-like symptoms. So he was just didn't feel good. He was vomiting a little bit and not eating obviously as much. And he just seemed like he didn't feel good. Here's where it kind of, where you're like, suspicion goes up is that he never had a fever. And so Hmm. I think I allowed him to be ill for about five days because that's, you know, if someone's going to be sick, they're going to be sick. And then you're going to expect him to start to like, maybe get better after that point. Mm -hmm. So I brought him to the doctor saying, Hey, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, this is not seeming like it's a normal virus. And the doctor sent me away. And then again, he was not getting better. And a couple more days went on. And I think I had my husband take him at that point. He took him, the doctor sent him away. All three times, Ugh. actually, this was the same doctor. Eh. I don't have super great words to say about that doctor. <laughs> I was going to say. Anyhow, <laughs> third time around, it was actually, there was, we were having um, a reunion with some of my college friends, families. And so we were driving on our way out there. And at this point had started doing this thing with his eyes where he was kind of bulging them out every once in a while. And it was really unusual. And you're like, why, why would he be doing that? And he just, he seemed to be in such pain and like, he was so uncomfortable. And so we were on our way out there actually to my girlfriend's house. And I said, Dan, I I can't do this anymore. Like we have to take him to the doctor again. And so we did. And the doctor immediately said, Hey, yeah, there's some things that I think we should check out. And so they sent us to the hospital to get some scans. And so So we met up with my parents to transfer my other kids. I had just one at that time, but I was 10 weeks pregnant with my third son. So I was 10 weeks pregnant and then I had a four-year-old. And so my parents took my four-year-old. And then, so then we were taking Levi down to the hospital. They got us in there and it's kind of a smaller hospital and they started doing some tests. First they did, I believe it was a CAT scan. And then they sent him upstairs to do some blood work and he was not cooperating for that. So there's a lot of people in the room. And then the doctor had come into the room and kind of said like, okay, like we're good. We don't need to do any more. I didn't catch that actually, as much as my Mm. husband caught it, like, oh, like, why do they know they don't need to do any more blood work? That's weird. Oh yeah. And so then they were kind of consoling our son and the doctor brought my husband and I to another room. And she basically said, okay, we, we found a mass in your son's brain. The transport team is on their way from the children's hospital. They're going to come get him so that we can get him the care he needs. And I remember her saying that there's treatment options. And I think that was the moment, like your world is changing right before you, that Mm -hmm. you're all of a sudden going to the hospital with your son having a mass in their brain. I think brain tumor is like the, like, you know how, when you talk about someone that's like really smart, you're like, you're like a rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. I think when you, people think about like the worst diagnosis is like, Oh, this is not a brain tumor. Right. It's kind of how I, I mean, I probably said that at some point in my life. Yeah. And so then when you actually get a brain tumor, or in my case, when my son is being diagnosed, I remember the kind of crying that I did that day was something that I don't know if I've ever repeated 
it was devastating. So devastating. And they sent a transport team from Rady's to get him to a better hospital for him. And I went with him and my husband drove our car. And so I remember being in the front of the ambulance and just kind of calling basically all my friends and telling them the news. So we get to the hospital, we get them all situated in the uh, PICU. And immediately what they wanted to do was to do a shunt, which is um, to, to relieve the pressure in his brain. So the reason his eyes were bulging was because the tumor had essentially cut off some of the flow from his cerebral spinal fluid and impacted enough to where literally like his head was just filling up with fluid. And, and that's why he was probably in significant pain and a major headache. And he couldn't talk a lot at this point, but I remember him saying when he was sick, like head hurts, he was able to say head hurts. And so we get to the hospital, we get, they get the shunt. And so actually for that procedure, essentially it's like a little, I mean, they drill a hole in your head. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a procedure. And <laughs> yeah. so my husband and I couldn't be in the room for that. And I just remember sitting outside of one of the benches at the hospital and just, I mean, being so unaware of what was going on around us and just being so, so devastated. And that oh, night started a two month journey in the hospital And it was five days until they could do the craniotomy to remove the tumor. I think they knew before the surgery that he was likely going to have some of the conditions that I described before. And so they actually had the endocrinologist come in and meet us. And they had the neuro-oncologist come in and meet us. And and I mean, these people are so amazing at what they do. And Mm -hmm. I remember the conversation from the endocrinologist and them saying like, we have treatment options and this might be the case. Like this might happen and this might happen. And, and just being like, okay, like having no idea what they were talking Mm. about, like not even conceiving that these conditions ever existed. Cause before you're in these shoes, like you don't know, you have no idea. I was like living in a different world. Yeah. Did they, did you think he was going to die? Like, was that on the table too? Or was it mostly like, this is treatable you don't need to go there. You know, that's a really good question. They definitely didn't say he could die. They were all hopeful. They were all hopeful Mm. that he wouldn't die. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the resident that essentially prepared us for his craniotomy maybe was a little bit more (laughs) thorough at his job than he needed to be. Cause I mean, they legally do have to explain like what the repercussions of a surgery are and then Mm -hmm. have you sign on the dotted line. So basically, I mean, the surgery that he had, it was essentially, they took his head apart and put it back together again. And (laughs) when I look for images to send people in those early days, and actually this happened today when I was looking for images to send to you from after his surgery, they're too graphic. They almost feel too vulnerable. Like it's when you see somebody that has had this surgery, I mean, so his scar goes from like basically his earlobe. Mm-hmm. up and around and then they like, back through to the like top of his opposite eye so oh, man. It's, it's a really big scar and it's like the most beautiful scar you ever have seen mm-hmm. it's just like his like to me it's just like this story this scar yeah. but and so essentially his eye was swollen shut for days and days and just like he's black and blue and so swollen and you know he's this two-year-old he came into the hospital I think he was like 25 pounds Yeah. And so they did not necessarily ever say that he would die. I would say that I do happen to be the glass half full kind of person where Mm -hmm. 
I really never went there that he's going to die. And interestingly enough, the incident I mentioned that happened last year, I was actually away when this was happening. And so when the doctor was talking to me, I asked him, is he going to be okay? And the answer that he gave was, this is really serious or something like that. I don't even know if those were the exact words, but the message was, I don't know. Like he was basically saying, I don't know. Cause I knew, I know the answer I wanted. It was like, yeah, we got this. Mm-hmm. And that certainly was not the answer I was given. So kind of jumping back to the surgery, mm-hmm. so the day of his surgery, I had a phone that the, they gave us at the hospital and it was about a six hour surgery. And a lot of my friends and family came to be with me and sit with me. And that was very mm-hmm. much appreciated. And getting that phone call, like the phone call updates from when your son's out of this kind of surgery, it was, those were some horrible moments. Just not knowing what you're going to hear. If you're going to first hear if your son made it through the surgery. Secondly, if you're going to hear if they were successful in removing all the tumor, because they don't know before they go in. And so I'll add that the type of tumor that he had is not responsive to chemotherapy. And so that's not an option. And it is responsive to radiation, but radiation on a child's head is, is really a last resort. And so really the best option was surgery and only Mm -hmm. real good option. And so for them to get all of it or to get what they believed was all of it was really important. And so when the doctor said like, yeah, like, I think I got it all. It was really relieving, like really, really relieving. Mm. And we still do scans every year. Um, I think the first couple years we did them every quarter and then we moved to every six months. Now we're at every year. And what's funny is like, maybe like two years ago, I had in my head like, okay, like this is our last scan after this, we're going to graduate. Mm-hmm. And I thought the doctor told me that, but oh, I guess I got that wrong. <laughs> and so then at this appointment after the scan, I was kind of like happy. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to continue scanning every year. Cause these tumors are really known for coming back. And so mm-hmm. I want to be very thorough and, you know, tells me about a time where he has a child that has it come back like 12 years later. Oh, I'm like, yeah, you do not need to be telling me this right now, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but so we're going to be scanning for a while still. Although I will say that I always just, I don't know, I guess I choose to just have a confidence about like, we're not going to have this tumor come back. Like we're not going to worry too much about that, but you know, when you go get scans and when you've, when you've had a positive scan before, like I said earlier, it's like hard to not to have your brain go a little wild sometimes. And I actually, um, more recently had something happen with his health health that was pretty insignificant, but my brain went real quick to how am I going to financially sustain myself while I have to stop working and when I have to go be in the hospital with him. Hmm. And I was like, wait a second. And so actually, as a result of that conversation I had with myself, I was like, okay, like it's time to get a little bit more therapy uh, in the sense of like seeing how quickly my brain reacted to that trigger. Mm -hmm. I was like, I know that there's some resources for this. And so I will be seeking them. That's good. That's, that's really wise. I think especially realizing like, Hey, that was a trigger. That was a trigger to trauma in the past. How has going through this experience changed how you feel about yourself and what you're capable of? It's a really good question. I would say it is the experience that has had me 
discover who I am mm-hmm. and that I don't think I gave myself credit for how strong and how brave I am. And I actually like (laughs) semi fought with the friend. I not fought, like she was saying, you're so strong. And I was saying, no, I'm not. Cause I think I didn't relate to myself. I was like, anybody would do this. Mm -hmm. And I do think most moms would do exactly what I did. But then I have to acknowledge, I'm like, no, actually, like what I do on a daily basis, the experiences that I have, like they are extraordinary, like, and, and I'm strong. Yes. And I mean, I could go on and on about all the things I've learned and, and discovered in this journey, but I think that's the simplest way of putting it. I love that. That's such a great note to end on, like just recognizing your strength especially I think in hindsight, it's a little easier when you have a little bit of distance from, you know, the, the major catastrophe, obviously your life is still hard, but being able to look back and be like, I got through that and I'm still here. And, you know, I hope that everyone listening also recognizes like, so are you, like you go through hard stuff and, and you endure it, like you're strong. And I just appreciate that perspective that you give and that you've been able to recognize that in yourself because you are, you are so strong. But thank you so much, Kara, for sharing your story and your heart with us. It's my absolute pleasure. You can find Kara's info to connect in the show notes and be sure to check out her podcast and her coaching program. As you heard in the episode, she is an absolutely lovely human. You can also check out the website, therarelifepodcast.com, for photos of Kara and her adorable family. Join us next week for Kara's special topic episode as we talk about the concept of diagnosis jealousy, and we get a little of that life coach insight. Don't miss it. See you then.